You know, one of the one of the best sermons I ever heard, one of the ones that was most powerful to me, was a sermon by uh, my good friend and a, and a very good friend of our church, Dr. Dr. Charles Telfer, a professor of biblical languages at Westminster Seminary, and he. Uh, he preached, a, he preached a, a sermon called The Two Cups. And um, um, what was great about the sermon, and what was great about it was he kind of plodded along, and it was kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it ended, at the end, he kind of tied all these strings together in this total gut punch of like what the two cups were. And so some of the same themes from that sermon are, are, are being brought out in this passage. It's a different passage, but... Some of the same themes are in there, and so I'm, I'm hoping, I, I want to give a shout out to Charles, thank you brother, for that great sermon, for inspiration, and today we're going to talk about Revelation uh, chapter 14, verses 6 through 20, and in this verse are implied not just two cups, but actually three. So let's see what that's all about as we intently listen together to God's inerrant word. This is from the book of Revelation chapter 14. Verses 6 through 20. And then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, the third angel, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, those worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, for those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth 
and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this is, again, as we come into Revelation, uh, as we are in and through this book, there are passages that are so heavy. And this is certainly one of them, Lord. And so we pray, Lord, we, we need you to illuminate our minds to the text, Lord. We need you to show us truth in this, Lord. There are some things, Lord, as we talked about last week, that just are, just make no sense in this age and make no sense to us now because we are not able to see everything the way you are and from our vantage point. There are things that just make zero sense, Lord. But we know that we can trust you, Lord, so we pray that you would show us as much as we can see and that you would give us the power to trust you for the rest. And especially, Lord, uh, we pray that you would show us the beauty of Jesus and what he's done for us. And in that, we can have complete confidence that you are a trustworthy God. So be with us, Lord. Give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise that you will beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Anybody that's uh, gone through college, or most people have gone through college, I know there's some, there's some of you, some of you very wise old souls uh, that managed to get through college without taking out any student loans, but for the rest of us, when you go to college, you take out, you take out loans for, to pay for the college and, and for class. And when you get out and you get out of school, uh, you have to start paying those loans back. However, there's, the government will give you a six-month grace period with which to find a job or figure it out or get ready for that, that looming day of judgment on the horizon when the government will call you to account and you have to, begin, you have to pay up what you owe. And if you default on those payments, then you have to pay in full everything, everything that you owe. And so sometimes that can be a scary thing if you're not able to get ready in time or just that burden. Even if you're able to meet it, man, just the, you know, the burden of that, the weight of that debt is so heavy um, that it's kind of a bummer. But the government does give you a grace period in, in, a, in maybe a bigger way or a heavier way. The idea of grace period is also involved in sometimes in military conflict. For example, in the 1991 Gulf War, uh, the U.S.-led coalition gave Iraq a grace period of 45 days to surrender or they would uh, come in with overwhelming force and destroy, uh, destroy the armies of Iraq. Well, in an even bigger and more terrible way, um, this is really kind of telling the story of, of that, that there is a grace period. God has given a grace period to mankind. Um, and But this passage doesn't just talk about the grace period that God has given us. It also talks about the ending of that grace period where God will call into account. There is a day, like it or not, uh, when God will call, well, the grace period ends and God calls to account uh, the debt that people owe for their rebellion against him. Um, 
And this is pretty much what this passage is talking about in a big way. That someday there's a day set. There's a day set. I have a friend who used to say, you know, like it or not, one day you're going to stand before God and give account for your life. And there is a day set on the calendar that is only known to God when the grace period ends and God will call into account the sin of mankind. Um, but in that, what that really is, is it's not just judgment, but it's also judgment as a necessary component to salvation and the redemption of his people. God has to eradicate evil and that which causes evil in the world in order to bring in the new. And that's what he's promised to do. And that's really what this passage is talking about. There's some really heavy and and scary and, and difficult things to understand in it. But again, as we've been seeing over and over again in the book of Revelation, this is the essence of this passage is again, it's a promise, a promise of God that he will come and eradicate evil uh, and save us through it and bring us into a new creation. So that's it. The big idea of this passage is that after an exceptionally liberal grace period, God will bring the final judgment over evil and the redemption of his people. That after an exceptionally liberal grace period, God promises that he will bring a final judgment of evil and the redemption of his people. So let's break that down one part at a time. Let's first, let's look at that. Let's look at this, the idea of the grace period or the exceptionally, the exceptionally liberal grace period. There is, and as we look at this, there's a, it brings out a paradox, right? There's a, there's a, there's a famous paradox in science. And if you, if you read anything, uh, probably a lot of you aren't like reading quantum physics for, for fun at night, but, <laughs> but there's, a, there is a, there's a theory in quantum physics or an, uh, a concept in quantum physics that's called the particle waveform duality. And what that means in, in a nutshell is that when we look at light and other, other subatomic particles, a photon or other subatomic particles, really doesn't matter what it is as long as it's small enough. As we observe it, for light, for example, it, 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 it has the characteristics of both a wave and also the characteristic of a particle, depending on really how we're looking at it and how we're observing it. And that's, that's a paradox because in classical physics, it can't be both. It has to either be a wave or, or a particle. And so there's a, you know, it's, there's a paradox in science is how can, how can both of these things be true within the bubble of reality? How can something be both a wave and a particle at the same time within reality? And it's a big unopened question. However, one of, the, one, of the, one of the theories or one of the ways that they're trying to solve that is to say that, well, it doesn't make sense. It is a paradox, or, or really you might want to say it's, a, it's an antinomy, which is uh, a little bit different. It doesn't make any sense in our reality, but if we were to, rem- if we were to go beyond three-dimensional reality into a higher-dimensional reality, then those two things might make sense outside of our reality, which is really what the nature of a paradox is. 
It's two things that seem to be conflicting within the box, but when you step outside the box, you see how they can make sense. Well, there's also, there's a similar a paradox or really an antinomy. An antinomy is a, is, is a better way to describe it because it's two, it's two truths that are proven to be true and yet they contradict each other. There's a guy, uh, J.I. Packer, is a, is a, a Christian theologian, He's written an entire book on this antinomy or this paradox that exists within Christian theology. The book is called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And so what is it? What's the paradox? Well, we see it. We see it here in Revelation. What is it? Well, first we see, if we go back to chapter 7, you remember chapter 7, all of before any of the tribulation, before God did anything, uh, to bring tribulation on the world, the very first thing he did in chapter seven was what? He sealed his people, meaning he sealed them spiritually and protected them and protected their faith so that their faith would not fail in the midst of the persecutions and hardship of life. And it is that sealing and that sealing alone that is what keeps us in salvation. <laughs> And that's the constant witness throughout Revelation and throughout the Bible. It is that no one comes to faith and stays in faith if they haven't received that sealing from God. And so it's really God's, it's God's, it's God doing, it's God's work in that that brings us into salvation and keeps us there. However, now we come to chapter 14 and look what's happening. Uh, the first part of this chapter, God is this picture of these angels that are giving to the earth dwellers. Remember, the earth, the dwellers of the earth are always pictured as the world system, the people arrayed against God, the enemies of God, the people that are shaking their fist against God, saying, We hate you, we don't want anything to do with you, or you don't even exist. Uh, it's this picture of God making and continuing to make this genuine offer of salvation, a genuine offer of the gospel that's being delivered and directed to the earth dwellers. Uh, and not, man, not just that, but this is, folks, this is the bottom of the ninth inning here. This is, when it says the hour of God's judgment has come, this is talking about the final judgment. This is like right prior to that, and actually really through the whole church age, but what it's showing is showing is that right up to the bitter, bitter end, God is continuing to preach and proclaim and make a genuine offer of salvation to his enemies and to the world system that is hating him. Why would he do that? You know, some people get all like wrapped around the axle about that and we, you know, they, we, 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 we go to these polar extremes, right? Um, some people try, there's a partial explanation where people say this is really that offer of salvation is, is really, um, it's genuine, but it's really, it's, the, it's part of the judicial process or it's part of God's judgment on mankind. He's making this genuine offer and people are rejecting it. And therefore, it's, the truth is being proclaimed, but all it's doing here is just hardening people hardening people to God and, 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 and people are just storing up fruit for judgment, or fruit for, uh, 
for condemnation, as it says elsewhere in the Bible. However, that doesn't totally explain it because this is a genuine offer. And so what is it, what's the big takeaway from this? I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but I didn't want to just pass it over. The takeaway on this is that we, we can you know, go to these, to these radical extremes when we think about our responsibility uh, in evangelism. And listen, as much as I want, as much as I like, I want to hope for like the, the, the giant specter of angels flying through the sky preaching the gospel to kind of make it easier for us to approach people about Jesus. Because I think maybe, you know, if a giant angel was actually flew across the sky announcing this message, it might make people more receptive to the gospel. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the whole gospel of John kind of discounts that idea and says, not really, it wouldn't, it wouldn't really help. Uh, but as much as I want to believe that, really, uh, the idea of angels also is really, the, angel means messenger. And in this age, the messengers that God is choosing to use are flesh and blood messengers. And so this is really, it's really talking about the church and the church's role in standing firm in the faith and continuing to present the true gospel, not the compromised gospel, and also the warning of imminent judgment with it. It's not a threat. I had a, a good friend once tell me that, you know, once the threat of hell is removed, there's really no reason to believe the gospel. And I was like, well, it's only a threat if it's not true. If it is true, then it's a compassionate warning. And this is, so this is a picture of us and our responsibility to present not only the truth of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus, but also present to people what it is that they're being saved from, which is the eternal wrath of God. However, what's, what's the big takeaway? Big, big takeaway from this is this helps us understand this antinomy of, of, yes, the only reason anyone ever comes to faith and stays in faith is because God seals us. And at the same time, God is making this genuine offer of salvation to everyone. It helps us to avoid these awful extremes where on the one hand, um, we can become guilt-ridden and feel guilty that somehow we are responsible for not doing enough to bring salvation in the world, and therefore, when people are lost, it's ultimately our fault. I was just talking to, I was, just, well, was, that, was that you, Brian? Just the other day, I was talking to somebody who was talking about, no, it was Nisa, a friend of, a friend of Nisa's, was telling her about um, a woman that had... Um, come into a small group situation and a friend of hers had died outside the faith and this woman was just racked with guilt racked with guilt um, oh no this is Ross Ross Ireland my my buddy I skate with Ross Ireland he's a, a brother and he was saying this woman was racked with guilt because she felt like she uh, didn't do enough, and so this woman being lost forever was essentially her fault. She just couldn't get over it. That's one crazy extreme we can go to, is to think that salvation is all about us, and if we don't do enough, we're somehow to blame and become guilt-ridden over it, and that's not right. But on the other side, we can swing all the way to the other side, a viewpoint of just of apathy, and have the attitude of, well, God is going to save his elect no matter what, and so therefore... 
I'm going to go make a sandwich. <laughs> we just don't really care at all. Or, or we let that idea of being sealed and God's election, um, we hide behind that rather than taking, participating in the ministry of reconciliation that God's called us to. So understanding this antinomy that we aren't going to understand completely in this world, we will when we are outside of this world, we will, I think, but what the big takeaway from it, it helps us to have a balanced view of evangelism. We passionately share the faith. We passionately share the faith because God, as we see, is offering the gospel to everyone. And he's called us as his flesh and blood ministers to do that. However, we do that in the confidence and the security of knowing that we're secure in election, that it's God going before us and doing the work of salvation and bringing people to us. And when we hold those things in balance, we don't fall off to the extreme of being guilt-ridden or apathetic. Uh, and so that's the big takeaway. I want to, you know, but, but <laughs> it's like a little side note on this. This is like a big shout out to, <laughs> to the guys who, were, who no one ever believed that they would ever, ever become Christians. And the guys like that have a special place in my heart because I'm one of them, right? Never, ever, ever thought, uh, no one ever bought I would become a Christian. And yet here we see a picture of God continually bringing the message of the gospel to people who are hardened and hate him. Uh, and in the midst of that, we can say, man, you never know. You never know who God's going to pull out because it's not you and your eloquence or your perfect grasp of theology or uh, your charm or your personality. It's God and the Spirit working through the Word to bring people into life. And so this is an encouragement to keep it up even to the bitter end and to never give up on anybody uh, and to hold these things in balance so that we're not guilty and we're not apathetic. Uh, and man, that should be our motive and that should be the desire of our heart to do that, especially since we know how bitter the end is going to be. So let's go to the second part. Second part is that after this exceptionally liberal grace period, God is going to bring final judgment and the eradication of evil. Uh, me and my me and my buddy Sammy, what's up, Sammy? We were hanging out the other day, and he was asked. We were talking about the the whole shutdown thing and how we're handling it, and um, and I was, you know, we were just getting really honest about it, you know. And I was telling him that, you know, uh, it's been great for us because we've been so blessed. We're so blessed. And, and, and it brought to mind, what it brought to mind was, um, was really my, my past. And when I, you know, in, there was a time in my life when God pulled me, when God brought me out of sin and out of, out of, the, uh, out of destruction and brought me in, into into, into life, right? When God saved me, just say it like that, when God saved me, when he first saved me, he saved me out of a reality that was so awful that the outside, when I thought about the good life, like the outside possibility of what the good life might entail for me 
was to have a to have like a Dodge van with like a clean bed in it that I could live in and have it like a safe place that I could go in this van. I literally, the outside horizon, bad they were until after the fact. I had to have this saying that's that, and the saying or the proverb that I, I, I made up back then was, you never really, you never know how bad it is until you see how bad it was. Meaning that we can get so acclimatized to bad, so acclimatized to evil, so, so really institutionalized to the world system that it's not till we get some distance outside of it, we get outside of the box ourselves that we can see how really, really bad it was. And that was an example of how God made a definitive end to the power of sin in my life, broke that power of sin, gave me a new heart and brought me into a new reality. And the farther away I got from my old life, the clearer I was able to understand how bad it was and how powerful it was over me, right? Well, I think that's the story that God's telling us here, that God is saying that in a large part that we are institutionalized into the world system of evil and that it affects us far more than we know. Uh, and part of, for the believers, part of the good news of the gospel is that he will eradicate evil from the world. As part of the, the, the renovation, the restoring of the world and the creation into a new creation, it is removing evil and that which causes evil in the world. And so this is part of the eternal gospel. Um, and, but that's hard, right? Why is it hard? Because we're talking, if we're talking about Satan and the angels, we can all go, yeah. <laughs> but it's not just talking about Satan and the angel, it's talking about people. It's talking about people, and man, should that fan the flames of our desire to evangelize. And here, in this passage, it talks about two cups. The first cup is, is the condition of people in unbelief. And, and it's, it's, it's given in, in symbolic terms as people being drunk, literally drunk on the Babylonian or, the, or, or Bab the wine of passion of sexual immorality that, that Babylon the Great gives to people in the world. Babylon the Great um, is like another, it's like another name for the world, because in ancient Israel, it was Babylon was the world system that impressed, oppressed and enslaved them. And so John uses that term in his day, it was the Roman Empire, and then that, that shifted and morphed and changed as time went on and on and on. And, and now it has, very, it has manifested into various forms throughout the world and exists now to, in various strengths throughout the world. Uh, but it's no, it's all that low, it's, it's what Babylon or the world system offers to people to entice them to come in and participate in it. It's really, it's a picture, it's not just, it says sexual immorality, but it's not just sex. It's, it's, it's debasing immoral sex that doesn't recognize the truth of God and creation. We've talked about that a lot. 
the truth that God has asked us to recognize and abide by, the truth that we can discern from created things, including people, man and woman, man, mankind. Uh, but it's more than that. It's more than that. It's the whole, it's, it's, it's a picture of being unfaithful to God and, and engaging in destructive things that the world offers, really. Here's a quote. I'm going to quote from, from Greg Beale. I try not to quote from theologians at length, you know, but um, he just nails this in a way that I really couldn't reproduce better. And he says, he says the, the effects or the condition of people who have been given this wine, the wine of passion to drink, is this. He said, he says, the phrase made to drink means that people must comply with society's demands in order to prosper. You got to fit in. You got to agree with what they say is good and true and beautiful. And if you don't, you're an outcast. But if you buy into it, if you uphold all the ways that the world is trying to discount God, eliminate truth, and place itself above God is the ultimate. If you go along with that, you're in the club. But here's the scary part. He says, once one imbibes the intoxicating influence of that prosperity, the pride of life, uh, things that look desirable to the eyes, desirable to the flesh, once one imbibes the intoxicating influence of prosperity, uh, it removes the desire to resist Babylon's destructive influence. It binds one to Babylon's own ultimate insecurity, and it, and it blinds you to God as the source of real security and numbs one from any fear of a coming judgment. Man. Not too long ago, there was a, there was a, a, a po very popular teacher who left the Christian faith, and I, and I wrote a commentary on it. I put up a picture of a spider wrapping, wrapping a cocoon around his prey. Uh, and the purpose was that spider venom, it doesn't hurt. It makes, it's, it's euphoric. It's like a drug. But the purpose of it is, is to drug you, is to drug the victim so that it becomes, it, come, it, it doesn't fight back and it willfully goes into, it, it doesn't fight back and becomes complacent as the spider, after a cocoon is formed, begins to suck the vital life juices out of its prey until there's nothing left but an empty and hard shell. And that's really, talk about scary, that's what it's talking about. That's what it's saying that sin really is. That's what it's saying that um, these, you know, these temptations that the world system, that Babylon, that the beast offers out to us, that the false prophet, the second beast, entices us to buy into so that we can be part of the club and be accepted and loved by the world. It's not just that we're sinning against God, which is true, but it's like, it's a, it, the, the scary part of it, it's like, it drugs you. It dulls spiritual senses. It makes it harder and harder to discern true from false. It makes it more and more difficult to resist the pull. And the worst part, it makes you completely numb and forgetful and alleviates any fear 
of the coming judgment. Man, that's a scary state to be in. That is so scary. And the crazy sad part is it said that that spiritual drunkenness, as it were, can become so impregnable that the only solution is God eradicates it. He has to eliminate evil and that which causes evil in the world in order to bring in his righteousness. And that's a picture of this, of this, of this passage. It's given in, in symbolic form of the second cup. The second cup is the wrath of God, the, ra- the wine of God's wrath. Uh, I'm going to read it. I didn't put the quote down, but let me read it. It says, um, He also, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail about final judgment because we're going to hit that in when we get to chapter 20. But I can't say a little bit. You know, this is talking about this cup of God's wrath is, is shown, it, it shows really the content or the nature of it. And then the, the second part or the last part of this passage is it, it, it's like a, we're catapulted forward in time and given a vision of the great harvest of the earth where God is harvesting the wicked and putting him into the wine press uh, of God's wrath. However, the idea of tor- the word for torment, it really comes from a word that means to put to test or to prove genuineness. It's really the, the root or the core meaning of that word. And it, it came to, to mean torment because back in the day that when we received, when, when you captured uh, enemy soldiers or uh, you would torture them in order to get truth out of them. And so it was a, it was a way of testing for truth from false. It's also used uh, in the sense of, of the furnace torments the gold in order to reveal the true uh, from the dross. And so there's that aspect of it. The whole idea of fire and sulfur comes straight out of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a picture of God uh, as an example or uh, as a foretaste eradicating evil from the world. Uh, and and, and what, is, what does it say comes of this or what's the experience of it? The experience of it is that they have no rest. And that's, con- that's a contrast directly with the eternal rest of the saints. It's a picture of people who never receive the Sabbath rest of God. Which is why some people believe, and um, it's totally possible as far as I'm concerned, that the nature of hell is being in God's presence 
but without the covering of Christ and therefore it being a torment and an agony to being like in the full strength of the sun without give, being having been given the righteousness of Jesus, which then turns the furnace of the sun into that which gives life. And so, man, you know, last week we talked about, listen, we talked about things that make zero sense in this age. And I have to admit, this idea of the eternal wrath of God makes zero sense to me. It makes zero sense to me. Um, I do not understand how, I, do not, I don't understand it at all, right? And so on that list of stuff that makes zero sense in this world, this is on the top of that list, right? But we talked about last week how once we are outside the bubble, once we're outside the paradoxes of this world, or outside the three-dimensional world that we live in and in the new reality and the new heaven, the song that we sing is this. Remember, what is it? All of your works are just and true. And we have to kind of lean into that, man. I mean, this is hard for us. Part of it, and a big reason that this is so hard for us uh, is that because we right now don't really have a grasp on how bad this is. And I mean living as fallen creatures inside the world system where sin is like ricocheting off of everything like bullets and we're caught in the crossfire. Um, we don't have a good knowledge of how bad it is and we're not going to we won't have a good idea. We won't know how bad it is until we can see how bad it was. And when we see that, we'll, I, think, I think we're going to recognize that in the same way that God, you know, we talk about this in theology, when God pulls you out from the power of sin, when he gives you a new heart and brings you into salvation, there's a change that happens. There's an even greater change that happens when we're saved and God glorifies us. We're removed from the very presence of sin. And as we're removed from the presence of sin and we get distance from it, we're going to look back and see how bad it was. And then God promises us that this is going to make sense and that we will be able to sing all of your works are just and true. And we'll be able to see that this was part of the good news of the gospel of God eliminating, eradicating evil in the world and that which causes us, causes it and bringing us safely through. So summarizing, first, God proclaims the gospel to the bitter end, and so should we, <laughs> too. Uh, in the end, most drink of this bitter cup of wrath. And through that, God promises to bring about the redemption of his people. Look at what's really, this is kind of, it's almost one of those turnarounds in the text that's so strange, it almost feels out of place for a minute. But listen, God gives this, this brutal description of the end of the age and the eradication of evil, which will bring about the end of suffering for his people. And right at the end of that, he just turns the corner and he says here at verse 13, he says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, 
Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. It just kind of just turns the corner real fast, right? From the cup of wrath of God's anger to the blessedness of the death of the saints. And when it says from now on, in the context of Revelation, we can tie that into it's really speaking of the accomplished salvation that Jesus, uh, that Jesus accomplished for us. Because of that, our death is blessed. But how, how is that? How can that be? Or why is that? And to kind of flush that out, the whole, I, the whole idea of the cup of wrath, right, comes from, comes from the Old Testament. There's a, there's a vivid passage in Psalm 75 that says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. It means, it means wine that's not diluted at all. It's full strength. Uh, you know, a, a, a heavy-bodied, full-strength wine. Uh, it says... And, and Psalm 75 says, For In the hand of God or hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And that's a vivid passage. It's not, you don't just, you can't just take a sip. He's saying, you can pound that thing <laughs> like a college drinking game all the way to the bitter end to the dregs, to the, to the dregs and, the, and, the, and the, the very bottom, the very, very bottom of the, of the cup. It reminded me, when I was reading this, it reminded me of the scene from Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince where Harry and Dumbledore go into the cave and they're, 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 they're seeking to defeat the evil wizard Voldemort who has used dark magic uh, to attach parts of his soul to physical objects so that he could live forever. And as they attempt to retrieve one of these objects to destroy it, they find that Voldemort has hidden it under uh, what's called the emerald potion or the drink of despair. Uh, And the only way to get to this emerald to destroy evil uh, and to bring about the salvation of people is to drink this bitter potion to the dregs. However, the problem is that no, no one can do it on their own because it creates a, a terrible fear and paranoia. It creates a, a, a dis, it creates um, delusion. Uh, it creates uh, delirium, as it were, delirium tremens almost, where there's you're hallucinating terrible and horrible things. Uh, along with physical pain and just brutal despair. And Harry has to feed him. And Dumbledore says, look, no matter what happens, no matter what my will is, you have to override my will with yours and continue to feed me this drink until I drink down to the very dregs in the bottom of the bowl. And so Harry does, and Dumbledore is, if you've seen the movie especially, in terror as he f- finishes this is bowl of despair down to the very dregs. Now I asked a question in a, a minute ago and bring it up again. And the question is this, why 
Why is it that we don't have to drink of the cup of the, of the wrath of God's fury? I mean, what makes us special? Is it because we're any less sinful than anybody else? Um, is it because we don't have tendencies, you know, to buy, or because we never buy into the low-hanging fruit of the world system that entices us to sin against God and, and hurt ourselves and others? Why is it that we don't have to drain that same bitter cup to the very end? Is it because you're so special? Well, that's not true. And the reality is that this cup shows up in various points of the, of, of the history of the Bible, in various points of the history of redemption. This cup shows up. And um, one of the most important places it shows up is on the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus says, you remember the story, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying and he's in such anxious, he's so afraid. He's so fearful and he's so anxious that blood droplets are forming on his forehead. He's literally sweating blood and he's praying to his father. And it says this in, in, in Matthew, he says, and going a little farther, he fell on his faith and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as your will. My Father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. Friends, the only reason why we don't have to drink of the cup of the wrath of God's fury is because Jesus drained that cup down to the dregs for us. That's what he's talking about. That's the cup. The cup is the cup of the wrath of God's fury. And when Jesus mounted that cross voluntarily for you and for I, what he was doing was fulfilling the prophecy from Isaiah, fulfilling the prophecy from Psalm 75, and not sipping that cup, but draining it, drinking it down to the very dregs so that you and I would never have to take even the smallest sip from it. And when we get that, man, when we get what Jesus was praying, what he was saying there, when we get what it was that he went through, when we know from this passage and others the terrible wrath that Jesus has saved us from, the wrath of God's anger, and we understand how he did it by drinking to the dregs that cup of wrath for us. That is what, that's what helps us, that, that gratitude that wells up inside us and the love for Christ that wells up inside us is the thing that empowers us uh, to, be, to seek out, uh, to continue to present this message to the world uh, even to the bitter end, no matter what. It's what helps us to continue to evangelize and, and to share the gospel, come what may. Uh, and it's what empowers us to continue to be obedient, obedient to what God says we should do. Not only knowing what Christ did for us, but also 
through passages like this, seeing that obedience to God is really what God has given us to protect us from the drugging effects of the world. Now, we can never get so drunk that we would fall away, but we can imbibe. And so the big takeaways from this are, is we ought to be as, this helps us to be grateful. Grateful to see what God has done for us, what he saved us from, how Jesus has done that for us. Uh, and then grateful so that we can be disciples, so that we can be evangelists, and we can carry out this mission that God has given us to the bitter end as we await the sure and certain promise of the new world that he's created for us. Amen. Let's pray.